The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. After the headlines, I interviewed the L.A. County Assessor Jeff Prang to discuss property values and property taxes post-COVID-19 in Southern California and many other topics, so stay tuned. Here are some headlines from over the weekend and this morning. Congress is once again up against a shutdown deadline amid an 11th hour effort to secure a much needed $900 billion pandemic relief deal with government funding that was set to expire last night at midnight. A late night Saturday breakthrough to resolve a key dispute holding up a secure package uh, signaled a major progress towards the deal, but congressional leaders are still trying to hammer out the final details of an agreement and believe that it could take some time to iron out the last remaining disagreements before finally unveiling the text to the rest of Congress shortly before votes occur. Yesterday, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said, I think we're very close, but we want to have members have enough time to review the bill. On Sunday, Senator Mitt Romney said that Donald Trump's flirtation with declaring martial law in battleground states and appointing a conspiracy theorist as special counsel to help his attempt to overturn defeat by Joe Biden are really sad and nutty and loopy. Romney continued, He is leaving Washington with a whole series of conspiracy theories and things that are so nutty and loopy that people are shaking their head, wondering what in the world has gotten into this man. COVID-19 continues to ravage the U.S. even as second coronavirus vaccine received the vote of recommendation from a committee at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization and Practices voted Saturday to recommend Moderna's vaccine candidate for people 18 and older following the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's decision a day earlier to authorize the vaccine for emergency use. Over the last week, the U.S. averaged more than 219,000 new COVID-19 infections a day, according to the Johns Hopkins University. There were more than 249,000 infections reported on Friday alone. That's another record. The death toll in the U.S. from COVID-19 is at 317,000 thus far. As President-elect Joe Biden weighed options to punish Russia for its suspected hacking of U.S. government agencies and companies, one leading Republican accused Moscow of acting with impunity and others called for retaliation. Biden's choices once he assumes office on January 20th range from financial sanctions to revenge cyber attacks on Russian interests, according to transition team sources. Donald Trump, meanwhile, maintains the hacking could be the work of China, despite the certainty of his own Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, that Russia was behind the attacks. A year and a half after Turkey acquired a Russian missile defense system violating U.S. sanctions law, President Donald Trump has implemented penalties against the so-called NATO ally. His refusal to implement these sanctions had drawn bipartisan rage in Congress, but authorizing them now has enraged Turkey, including Turkish President Erdogan, amid deteriorating relations between it and its Western allies like the U.S. Congress was about to force Trump's hand passing its annual defense policy bill last week that required the White House to implement these sanctions within 30 days. Erdogan has gone rogue for years, destabilizing parts of North Africa, Eastern Europe, and the Middle East. He recruited ISIS and jihadist mercenaries to destabilize Libya and the Syrian government, has been provoking Greece in Eastern Mediterranean and threatening Cyprus, a nation that Turkey invaded in 1974. Most recently, Turkey backed Azerbaijan's genocidal attack and ethnic cleansing against Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, killing over 5,000 Armenians. 
Erdogan recruited ISIS and mercenaries from Syria, Libya, Pakistan, and paying them $2,000 a month to kill Armenians, plus $100 bonuses for every Armenian beheaded. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. For today's Let's Get Blunt, I want to talk about Congress's work uh, and inaction at times to help the American people. Now, despite having many members of Congress who are working very hard and being crusaders so that the American people get some relief, Congress as a whole has been a failure in, in helping Americans. I mean, the last stimulus check that people received was about six months ago. But I should also really put the spotlight on Majority Leader Senator McConnell. Well, as millions of Americans are struggling during what should be you know, a happy time of the year, the holidays, uh, Senator McConnell is holding COVID-19 relief hostage. In his ransom, he wants total immunity for corporations that recklessly endanger consumers and workers uh, during this pandemic. Now, for months, Senator McConnell has insisted that Congress should take action to protect corporations. These are the same corporations that allegedly uh, engage in wrongdoing and endanger their employees, consumers, and patients. These are companies that don't provide protective equipment or mandate physical distancing in the workplace. You know, they would face no civil liability when their workers become sick. So even as Americans go hungry and confront homelessness, McConnell is trying to leverage the coronavirus emergency to greenlight corporate abuse uh, instead of helping the American people. But worse, he's lying to the American people about his motivation, claiming that an epidemic of coronavirus-related lawsuits must be addressed. The actual epidemic, of course, is COVID-19, taking thousands of lives every day and sickening the very workers businesses depend on for their profits. So he's exaggerating these so-called lawsuits to once again protect corporations. I want you to listen to a clip from Congresswoman Katie Porter, uh, who puts it beautifully. Take us through what it's been like for you in the House, having passed uh, COVID relief bills, massive COVID relief bills, uh, months ago that have been ignored by Mitch McConnell. uh, And now we're going through this process uh, where Mitch McConnell continues to ignore the best efforts made by everyone else trying to solve this problem. You know, it's not just what I've been going through as a member of Congress. I I just want to say what I've been going through personally. You know, you talked at the beginning about Mitch McConnell not crying today. Well, I cried today because my grandmother is dying of COVID-19. And she's dying because of people not taking responsibility for this pandemic. So it's, it's just disgusting to me that Mitch McConnell will not allow a bipartisan compromise to move forward because he wants to give away goodies to huge corporations. Let, let me just, uh, Congressman, please go back to your, your grandmother for a moment. I'm very sorry to hear about her condition. Uh, where is she and h- how long has she been sick? And, and what are you hearing about her condition tonight? She's in Iowa where she was born and has lived her whole life. Um, she's 94 years old um, and she was transferred to the hospital um, and we elected to have her put into hospice. Um, and so she's receiving comfort measures um, and will pass away um, in the upcoming days of COVID. And in the meantime, I'm getting phone calls from constituents who've lost loved ones. I'm hearing stories about workers who are scared to go to work because they don't have enough PPE. I'm putting food into trunks of cars to help people at food banks. This is the epidemic in America. It's an epidemic of COVID. It's an epidemic of hunger. It's an epidemic of housing insecurity. You know what? It's not an epidemic. It's not an epidemic of lawsuits. And any effort by Mitch McConnell to suggest that that is happening is flat out lying to the American people. Let me ask you, as a former law professor yourself, about a technical point here that isn't clear to me. How would federal legislation control civil lawsuits within the 50 states, each of which have different rules for civil lawsuits within those states? 
That concept is called preemption. And what it basically does is that when the federal government passes a law, in this case, the proposal for Mitch McConnell is to allow corporations to act as recklessly as they want and to not be on the hook if people get COVID and die as a result of their recklessness. And so the federal law would override the state law. Now, you know, it's interesting to think about this. I've been thinking a lot today about my tort class in law school, where I learned about how these rules about employer liability came to be. We put these rules in place because corporations, particularly at the time railroads, were allowing their workers to get maimed, to be killed, and not engaging in any kind of reasonable safety precaution. So we adopted the standard we have now. So if businesses are following reasonable rules, state public health guidelines, they're not going to face any liability. There is no epidemic of liability. In fact, there are more lawsuits, baseless lawsuits, brought by Trump about this election than there have been medical malpractice or personal injury lawsuits relating to COVID-19. So Mitch McConnell is in search. This is not a problem. This is simply about giving his corporate donors what they want. So when I listen to you talk about Steve Smith, and he's talking about this conspiracy to keep, his words, a conspiracy to keep in power, I think it's really important to peel back. Keep who in power? And the answer is the nation's largest corporations who want a green light They basically want a license to kill without any liability. Next, I want you to listen to Senator Bernie Sanders' speech uh, in Congress about the stimulus bill and how it's uh, very inadequate and not enough in a way that only Senator Sanders can put. So take a listen. Uh, We are talking about funding for vaccine distribution, which is a no-brainer. We've got to get that vaccine out to every state in this country if we're going to finally put an end to this horrific pandemic. We're talking about in this bill, in this proposal, increased funding for education, healthcare, childcare, nutrition, housing, transportation, and many other very important areas. I agree with all of that. But the problem is that while this proposal addresses some of the major crises facing our country and the families of our country, there is simply not enough money in the proposal to deal with the unprecedented crises that we now face. It is no secret to anybody that right now, at this moment in America, we face the worst set of crises that this country has seen for perhaps 100 years. The pandemic is surging throughout America. More and more people are being diagnosed with the virus. More and more people are ending up in hospital. More and more people are dying. But it is not just the public health crisis that we're addressing. We're dealing with a terrible, terrible economic meltdown where many, many millions of people have lost their jobs, they have lost their health care, people are working in many cases for fewer hours, rather than 40 hours a week, they're working 30 hours a week, less income coming in. So this bill has a lot in it that is good, but given the enormity of the crises that we face, it's simply does not go anywhere far enough. Mr. President, as you may well remember, in May, in response to the crisis, the Democratic House passed a HEROES bill calling for $3.4 trillion in new money to address the kind of crises that we are facing. And while that bill did not have everything that I wanted in it. It was a serious, serious step forward in addressing the multitude of crises facing our country. It was a $3.4 trillion bill passed in the House in May. In July, the House came back and said, well, we're not going to spend $3.4 trillion. We're going to reduce it to $2.2 trillion 
and they passed what was called a Heroes 2 bill, to, which called for $2.2 in new money. Again, did not go as far as I would want, but was a very serious effort. And among other things in that bill, as well as the first Heroes bill, there was provision to extend unemployment benefits for another four months and provide a $600 supplementary check. And there were provisions in it to provide a $1,200 direct payment to adults and $500 to their children. That was the Heroes 2 bill for $2.2 trillion. Just a few months ago, the Trump administration, represented by Secretary of the Treasury Mnuchin, proposed a $1.8 trillion bill. $1.8 trillion, trillion. And today, the bill that is being negotiated calls for all of $348 billion in new money. This is a $900 billion bill, but most of the funding is carried over from the CARES Act. $348 billion in new money. In other words, this is roughly 10% of what Democrats in the House passed in the first Heroes Bill. Now, I was a mayor for eight years. I know a little bit about negotiating. I frankly don't know how you negotiate from $3.4 trillion down to $348 billion. You got 10% of what you originally started with. This is not just numbers. What this is about is whether in this moment of unprecedented crisis, when families are struggling to feed their children, when a half a million people are sleeping out on the street, when in the midst of this awful pandemic, over 90 million Americans are uninsured or underinsured, can't go to the doctor in the midst of a pandemic when they are sick, at a time when many, many millions of families are worried about getting evicted from their apartments or their homes because they no longer have the income to pay their rent or pay their mortgage. That's the crisis that we are in right now. And unfortunately, this proposal does not address that crisis to the degree that it should. Now, that is the bad news. And my hope, very sincere hope, is that when the Biden administration comes to office in late January, that their very first priority will be to address the deficiencies and the inadequacies in this bill. The American people today, the working class of this country today, is struggling in a way that we have not seen since the Great Depression of the 1930s. People are desperate. I will never forget, in my state, in my community, my neighborhood, a few months ago, Burlington, Vermont, they shut down, the state shut down a highway, and hundreds and hundreds of automobiles lined up, one behind each other, in order to get emergency food distributed by the Vermont National Guard in my community. And that is going on all over this country, where states are in worse shape than the state of Vermont. People who have never, ever gotten, gone to an emergency food shelf are now lining up for emergency food packages in the United States of America, in the richest country in the history of the world, at a time, by the way, when a number of billionaires are doing phenomenally well. So this bill, in my view, does not go anywhere near far enough in terms of addressing our crises. And I hope that as soon as the Biden administration comes into office, they will address 
those deficiencies. Now, the good news, and there is some good news, and I'm happy as we enter the holiday season uh, to say something uh, that I think the American people are wanting to hear. And that is when you ask the American people, and the pollsters do that, and they say to the American people, we're in the midst of this terrible crisis, what do you think should happen? And overwhelmingly, some 80% of the American people, overwhelmingly Republicans, Democrats, independents, they say that in the midst of this emergency, we need the United States government to respond to our pain. Because we don't want to get evicted. We don't want our kids to go hungry. We don't want to be saddled with incredible debt. Government has got to do something. 80% of the American people, Democrats, Republicans, independents, understand that. And then when you ask them, what is the most important thing that can be done? And there's a long list of things. What they say the most important thing that can be done is in this moment, help my family out, get me some money so I can pay my bills, so I don't get evicted, so I can feed my kids, so I can go to the doctor when I get sick. Get me a direct payment. As you know, Mr. President, the CARES Act provided $1,200 for every working class adult in this country. That is an individual uh, earning less than $75,000 a year, a couple $150,000 plus $500 for their kids. That means for a family of four, husband, wife, two kids, that's 3,400 bucks. Now you don't get rich with that, but when you get a check of $3,400 for a family of four, it means that maybe you could pay your bills. Maybe you could breathe a little bit easier. Maybe come Christmas time, you might actually be able to buy your kids a few gifts. Maybe the fear of eviction is lessened just a little bit. That's what we did in the CARES Act, and that is what I wanted in this bill. Now, a week ago, 10 days ago, nobody here was talking about the need for direct payments, help for working families, despite the fact that that is the issue, the program that the American people most wanted. A lot of other important things that we're dealing with. That is what the American people wanted. Help us out. Let us make a decision. Get us some money in this time of need. And I'm happy to say, working with people like uh, Senator Hawley of Missouri, working with the Progressive Caucus uh, in the House of Representatives, uh, working with Senators uh, Gillibrand and Warren and Merkley, Mark Markey and Wyden, uh, working with uh, Pramila Jay Jayapal and uh, many others in the House, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, uh, Ro Khanna, and many others who have stood up in the House and said, we have got to have direct payments. I'm happy to say that as of now, and we're going to fight for more because this process is not over, the proposal, as I understand it, provides uh, for a direct payment of $600 for every working class adult and $600 for their kids. That means uh, for a family of four, that would be $2,400. That is half of what I wanted, uh, but it is a step forward, and I'm going to do my best to make sure that uh, we come as close to that $1,200 as we possibly can. Mr. President, millions of our people today <coughs> are living in desperation. Half of our workers are living paycheck to paycheck, while one out of four American workers today are either unemployed or making a starvation wage of less than $20,000 a year. During the holiday season, over one-third of Americans expect to lose income, one-third, and are having a difficult time paying for basic household expenses. In America today, hunger is at its highest level in decades, more than, half American, more than half a million Americans are homeless, 
and over 30 million of our people are on the brink of eviction. By January 1st, 12 million Americans will owe an average of $5,800 in back rent. And as bad as this crisis is for the whole population, from coast to coast, it is worse for the African-American and Latino and Native American communities. <clears throat> During this pandemic, nearly 60% of Latino families and 55% of African-American families and many, many, many Native American families have either experienced a job loss or a pay cut. So Mr. President, all across this country, working families are standing up and they say, you know what? We have served in the military. We're doing our best to raise our kids in this unprecedented moment in American history. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. L.A. County Assessor Jeff Prang was sworn in as the 27th Assessor for the County of Los Angeles in 2014 and then again by a wide margin in 2018. Assessor Prang served for 18 years as a council member for the city of West Hollywood, including four terms as mayor, among many other positions in public sector. Upon taking office in 2014 as the LA County Assessor, Mr. Prang implemented sweeping reforms to ensure that the strictest ethical guidelines rooted in fairness, accuracy, and integrity would be adhered to in his office. The LA County Assessor's Office is the largest office of its kind in the nation with 1,400 employees and provides the foundation for a property tax system that generates $17 billion annually. Good morning, Assessor Prank. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much. Good to, good to be with you, Vic. Thank you. How are things with you, the Assessor's Office, and LA County, just the general as we are amid this, uh, you know, this uh, pandemic? Well, I would say that the uh, county assessor's office is like, similar to what's happening in uh, lots of other government agencies. We're trying to do the best we could do to provide the essential services that government provides while keeping members of the public as well as our employees safe. We have uh, uh, the L.A. County government in general is uh, focused on having its employees work from home and on any given day, 85 to 95 percent of my 1,400 employees are teleworking. You know, when we first got started, it was a bit, bit of an adjustment. Um, you know, people are at home, they have child care or other type of, uh, you know, uh, maybe caretaker um, type issues to be concerned about. There are differentials in the types of technology that they have at home as opposed to what they have at the office. So it uh, had a bit of impact on our on our work, but you know we're finding the uh, finding the rhythm and getting things done. Thank you for that. So you are the assessor of the largest number of constituents of any county in the U.S. You know you talked about you know how COVID nineteen has affected affected. Well, your, did you want to correct me on something? Go ahead. No, I'm certain that a lot of you are listeners do not know anything about the assessor. What I do know is that probably 99% of the people think they knew, know what the assessor does. Right. They think the assessor collects taxes, which he doesn't. Um, the assessor does not collect taxes. There's another, another guy with a really intuitive title who does that, and he's called the tax collector. Really right. easy to, uh, <laughs> to uh, dif differentiate. So the assessor's office, uh, it's one of three elected offices countywide. The other two are much better known, the district attorney, and the uh, uh, and the sheriff, the assessor's job is to uh, uh, fairly accurately and and thoroughly value all taxable property in the county, both real property, meaning land and improvements, as well as what we call business personal property, which is equipment and machinery, furniture um, in uh, in the business environment. And the LA County Assessor's Office is the largest assessment agency of its type in the United States. 
as I mentioned previously, I've got about 1,400 employees and a budget of $200 million, and we're responsible for assessing the value of 2.5 million um, parcels and business assessments annually, which last year was valued at $1.77 trillion. Wow. You keep in mind, that's the assessed value. That's uh, your, your property for assessment purposes is determined at the time uh, that, you, that you acquire the property. The market value is probably considerably higher than $1.7 trillion. And so we, uh, um, and this becomes the foundation for the property tax system. This is how local governments, such as school districts, cities, as well as county services, are paid for uh, primarily through property taxes. Another source is uh, sales tax, of course. So that's what we do. We're kind of one of those foundational behind the scenes. Um, Government agencies, people don't really quite know what we do. Um, yeah. Myself and the other 57 assessors in uh, California, you know, we, we all deal with uh, the confusion that the public has about who, who does what in the property tax chain. And most people think we collect taxes and they call us the tax assessor, which is actually not, not an accurate title. Right. Uh, um, Tax assessor is a conflation of actually two separate departments, the assessor and the tax collector. Yeah. Um, but we do the best we can do to steer people in the right direction and answer their questions and provide the service that they need. Yeah, I'm glad you cleared that out. I've actually heard you sort of really specifically explain what an assessor does, but of course it's something that needs to be needs to be said over and over again. And you actually you also answered my next question, which was what's the biggest misconception about uh, the L.A. County Assessor's Office, uh, and thank you for clarifying about um, what I meant about the size of the Assessor's Office in the country. Go ahead. I do a lot of public speaking. I try to do, uh, I speak to a lot of uh, community groups, you know, realtors, rotaries, chambers of commerce, and I do the best I can do to try to shed some light on how the system works. Uh, property tax administration is actually pretty complicated in California because there's a whole lot of departments that are involved. Um, but in most counties, only the assessor is elected. The rest, the rest of them are appointed by the Board of Supervisors. But you know, kind of the way our system works is if you buy a house or property, you record a deed with the registrar recorder. Right. And then, um, or if you do new construction on your existing property, you pull a building permit with the city. And then the city and the registrar recorder send us those permits and deeds and then my people, who uh, primarily are appraisers, you know, the real estate appraisers and business appraisers, they determine what the value is. And we, we, the, the annual inventory of all the value of property we call the assessment rule, um, we then turn that over to another department that most people are not familiar with called the auditor controller. And the auditor controller is the one who assigns you your tax rates. They're the ones who tell you what you owe. And then they send that information to another department the treasurer and tax collector who sends the bills and collects payments. And so um, as you can see, it's, it's kind of complicated. Yeah. Um, the assessor is probably the best known. What's kind of funny, though, is the tax bills were, the tax bills were just due on December 10th, and they're mailed out from the tax collector's office. And the L.A. County tax collector is a gentleman by the name of Keith Knox. And when you receive that bill, it has Keith Knox's name on it, and says treasurer and tax collector. And when people call about their, their bill, if they have an issue, they call our offices and say, I just got something from yeah. you. And I always want to say, well, how, you know, my name is nowhere, <laughs> is nowhere on that bill. Yeah. Um, but people are so hardwired and thinking it's the assessor or right. what they, economist conception, tax assessor, um, leads them to, uh, to our office. And Makes we can sense. usually help them with a lot of lower level uh, Makes sense. questions, but frequently we have to refer them over to the tax collector's office to assist. Yeah, I can I can see how many calls you would have just, just for that one mistake. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with L.A. County Assessor Jeff Prang discussing property values and property taxes post-COVID-19. So let me ask you this. How has COVID-19 affected property values in L.A. County? So there obviously is going to be an impact on the real estate market. So there's a few things that we're watching carefully and that, uh, that we're trying to quantify 
right now uh, in the middle of COVID. So here's a few, a, a couple of things. One is the median sales price for a single family detached home in LA County has actually increased rather precipitously since uh, the pandemic first started back in uh, about March. Wow. Um, the, the median sales price of a single family home is about countywide is about 745,000. It's up about 90,000 over the same period last year. That's a pretty strong increase. Um, but we are, but there is some, there's some caveats to that. One of the things that we're seeing is that homes that are selling are tending to be at the higher end of the market. There is not a lot of turnover at um, medium to lower, lower end of the housing market. Um, at the same time, we're also not seeing reduction in values at the lower end. That's relatively stable, but to agree that there is movement, property values at the higher end are uh, uh, continuing to increase. A couple reasons for that. One is historically low interest rates is keeping the market uh, moving. Um, additionally, uh, inventory is down. People are waiting out the, uh, the, the crisis and they're not, they're not selling or buying right now, so there's not as many things available to buy. So that's pushing up, uh, uh, pushing up values at the uh, at the higher end. But we also know that sales volume, the sales year over year, are down about forty five percent as of October. Wow. The other piece that we're watching carefully is the, the commercial side of uh, of of the market. Um, I was uh, showed a study about a month or so ago that seemed to suggest that uh, uh, commercial office space um, and uh, property values are down about 25% due to COVID. Um, the other part of the commercial side that's really impacted is uh, hospitality, which is broadly defined as, as hotels or restaurants, as well as retail. Obviously, stores are closed. Some of them will not be coming, coming back. Um, hotels are operating at 30% occupancy, where normally there's anywhere between 70 and 85% occupancy. Um, there's an assumption that it may take several years for that to recover. So next uh, next year, we are, are, are expecting to see some categories of commercial properties actually lose value. And um, so the, the way that we do our job is that we we take a snapshot of property values once a year, January 1st. We, it's called the lean date. So you're we assume we calculate the value of your property on the lien date for property tax purposes. And if your market value of your property on January 1st is less than essentially what you paid for it, you may be entitled to property tax relief. If you want a hotel for $10 million last year due to COVID, now it's only worth $7 million, you'll be entitled to property tax relief. Okay, that's fair. But I do want to—I want to emphasize to people who own property who who think that their property has lost value. This is this is a very confusing point here. Um, if you lose equity, you're you're not losing equity alone does not entitle you to property tax relief. You the uh, you must lose value beneath your base year. Your base year is the year that you whatever you buy the property, and then there's a. a what we call it an adjusted base year because each year your property assessment can be adjusted as much as 2%. So over time, that base year will increase a little bit. Um, but when the market value is less than your base year, you are entitled to property tax relief. And right. we, will, we will apply that pro, prospect, uh, uh, proactively. We will try to identify those properties and we will actively lower the value. But if, uh, if you own property and you... You can also file what's called a decline in value application, um, ask, which is an administrative request for us to review the value of it to see if it uh, should be adjusted. Or in some cases, you can actually file an assessment appeal to have the assessment appeals board uh, make it make it a determination. So, like, if you bought a house in 2010 for 500,000, and right before COVID, it was uh, valued at. 900,000 but because of covid right. it's now worth or it's valued at 700,000 you've still increased 200,000 yeah, in, right you lost $200,000 in equity but your base year was 500,000 
so you're two thousand dollars in the uh, two hundred thousand dollars in the black. So in those cases, you would not be entitled to prop, yeah. property tax relief that makes under sense. the law. But if you if you purchase your property for five hundred thousand dollars in 2010, then in 2020 pre-COVID it was worth a million. Then after COVID it's worth three hundred thousand dollars. You would be entitled to to relief. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And so this that's going to keep us. One of the things that's really uh, uh, kind of counterintuitive about our job as well is that during a recession, when government is tightening its belt and uh, trying to reduce services, that's when when things actually get really busy for us. Because not only do we have to do our, our normal work, but now we have to go back and look at properties that may have been negatively impacted and make adjustments for those. So it's uh, even more time time intensive for us. Yeah, that's... But we're, um, one of the basic tenets of of the law is you're not supposed you're supposed to pay what uh, property taxes an accurate amount, not more or less. So it's really incumbent upon us to make sure that we're um, reflecting those changes to uh, to property values to ensure people are, get the the relief that they're entitled to. Right. This is the Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with LA County Assessor Jeff Prang discussing property values and property taxes post-COVID-19. And I'm sure there's there's some people that have false expectations of what should happen just because of COVID and things like that. There are a lot of those types of expectations, primarily because people don't, uh, they really don't know how the, uh, um, the, the system works. And that's what, been one of the struggles I've had since I've been assessor now for six years. And it is such a uh, an obscure office. Uh, in past years, I, th- I think people have been pretty hard pressed to tell you if they knew who the assessor was or were even aware that was an elective office. Um, the um, in fact, as an aside, I'm I'm always confused with the LA City Controller, which is a totally different office, different jurisdiction, uh, a totally different job. Right. But uh, um, we're. Uh, I have worked very hard over the last six, six years to expand our public education efforts, trying to go to people where they were, where they are, um, uh, to get as much information on the uh, on, on the internet to help uh, people navigate what can be a very, very uh, confusing confusing system. And there's a lot of things we do that a lot of folks, unfortunately, will come into contact with, whether they want to or not. Uh, for example, most people don't know that. When a property owner dies, you're required by law to notify my office within 150 days that there was a death. If you don't do so, it's going to totally screw up any inheritance in estate planning. Could end up causing that your property to be reassessed, even under circumstances where it shouldn't be. Um, could end up forcing uh, supplemental tax bills, and and once you start getting into the the, the billing cycle, it's very hard. It, it takes a long time to get out of it. And if you have to pay money up front, that takes a long time to get it back. So I'm doing the best I can do to try to let people know about these sort of you have what I call re- retail levels of interaction with our office. You have, because I've, I've seen you all over the place. You've definitely put a face with the name LA County Assessor, and we appreciate that. I want to ask you... For next year, 2021, what can people look forward to from your office and related, uh, perhaps some initiatives you're working on or some good news? Well, there's a, there's a, there's a couple things that I'm focused on. Some of it, well, I think the public would talk about, they, they would see the value in it and recognize that these things are really important to us. They may not see how it impacts them directly, but we are in the process uh, toward the end of a process of replacing our technology platform. It's a $100 million project to upgrade our system from an old mainframe system to uh, a new 21st century system that will make things much more uh, productive for our employees and make it much easier for the public to get information and get uh, answers to the questions or to take care of some other processes now that are essentially paper-based and, and, and manual. I think the other thing that we're going to be, we're going to be focused on is, um, as I stated, we are we are not a revenue department per se. Our job is not to generate revenue. Our job is to reflect the value of property, whether it goes up or down. However, we're also responsible to make sure that everything that should be accounted for is accounted for. 
So if there's a, if we only account for 97% of the taxable property in the county, that 3% that we're missing represents millions of dollars in revenue. And the reason that revenue is important is because that's what pays the salaries of teachers. That's what's paying the salaries of these public hospital doctors and nurses. It pays for police and fire and roads and parks and libraries and uh, tree trimming and trash collection. All the things that we depend on is paid for predominantly through through property taxes. So while my job is not to uh, generate revenue, but the more thorough that we are in our job, um, the more revenue there will be to pay for those services. And it's more important in the wake of COVID um, than ever before because people are, are quarantined at home, so sales taxes are way down. Um, other types of government revenues are down. Even parking fines in some cities like West Hollywood, you know, parking fines were uh, right. a huge part of the uh, city's, uh, city's revenue. And they're, they're, they're down significantly because they're not issuing parking tickets. So they're more reliant on those sources of funds that are, uh, that are left, and that's, uh, that's property taxes. I, can't, I, do, I, I do know that the, we are anticipating that property value growth for 2020, 2021 will be in the net positive, but it will be this significantly lower rate than it was last year. So we're working hard to get our get the job done to provide the same level of service and ensure that we provide that floor to uh, ensure that those vital public services we all rely, that we all rely on, that city council members and school board members and supervisors have available to them to, uh, to support those services. Yeah, because some of the fallout from COVID-19 is it's going to have a, a later effect into next year, probably year, you know, years to come. Well, it's because it's... Uh, it, it was a, a shock to the system. So some of the things that L.A. County did that you're also seeing in the city of L.A. as well as a lot of other cities, they're, uh, they're implemented hiring freezes. So people who do critical jobs aren't, uh, aren't filling them. They've, uh, uh, they may have uh, furloughed or laid people off. They may have uh, eliminated uh, uh, cost of living adjustment raises for public employees, they may have cut programs and services, and it takes a while to uh, to ramp that back up again. It's not, you can't just flip a switch and put everything back in order. A lot of those people have, uh, people who have moved on, you need to, uh, hiring people is, uh, takes a little bit longer in, in government, reinitiating programs that have been shut down, it takes time. Yeah. But it's also, uh, it's very likely that the vaccination process to get everybody in this country, uh, inoculated will take the better part of 2021 yeah this is the blunt post with vic i am your host vic jarami and you are listening to my interview with la county assessor jeff prang discussing property values and property taxes post covid 19 i read that for the vaccinations to really have some sort of an impact nationally it'll be well into 2021 so we have a we have a lot of work to do in 2021 <laughs> Yes, indeed. So thank you for all of that. You just gave a lot of great, dense information. Anyone who's listening, I hope uh, they now know what an L.A. County assessor does, or assessor does, I should say. Um, assessor Prang, um, just one. Is there anything I missed or any question I should have asked you that people would want so, to know? There is. Let me give you the, 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 some Hopefully, good news, not uh, earth-shattering news, but good news. But if you're a, a homeowner or a condo owner um, and you live in that home or condo, you are entitled to what's called the homeowner's exemption. Now, the homeowner's exemption allows me to reduce your assessed value by $7,000 for tax purposes. So it'll save you, uh, you know, uh, one, it'll save you 70 bucks a year on your property taxes. Not a huge savings, but I know that right now a lot of people are struggling, and anything you can do to save money, I'm sure you'd appreciate. You only have to file once. Um, the thing is, about 30% of all L.A. County homeowners and condo owners do not apply for the homeowner's exemption, primarily because they don't know about it. Um, uh. And so I've been working hard to try to uh, let people know that this is something you can apply for. It's really easy to download the form at our web website, which is 
assessor.lacounty.gov. Um, there's a little button on the left-hand side that says lower my taxes and look for the homeowner's exemption. Print out the form and mail it in, and uh, you, you'll save a little bit of money every year for as long as you live in that home. That's a great tip. And there's, there may be some other programs in there that uh, that apply to you. There's programs for veterans, for seniors, for the disabled, um, as well as if you're the victim of a fire, flood, or earthquake, uh, you can get property tax relief in those circumstances as well. And um, they're all clearly laid out on, on the website. Okay. So just check out your website for links and information. Assessor.pelicani.gov. Fantastic. Well, Assessor Prank, thank just you. Just as a tip for... to people, when you go, when you look, go, to, go look for our website. Don't type in my name and go to my campaign website. A lot of people <laughs> <Right>. do that. <laughs> they go to, go to the assessor's website, not to the Jeffrey Prang website. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you for for all of that great information and for your time. Very glad that you were on the show today. Thank you so much. It's uh, great to be with you today. I'm glad we had a chance to uh, share some of this information with your listeners, and I uh, look forward to coming back sometime in the future. Fantastic. Thank you. That was L.A. County Assessor Jeff Prang clarifying a lot of misconceptions about what the assessor's office does and also giving us a lot of great information. He is uh, definitely one of the hardest working elected officials uh, that I know. So thank you, Assessor Prank, for being on The Blunt Post with Vic today. I have three recent tweets from members of Congress to share with you today. The first one is from Congresswoman Jackie Speer on COVID-19 relief. She said, my constituents are desperate and $600 of stimulus doesn't cut it. How about cutting the tax deductibility of double martini lunches and double the stimulus checks instead? Question mark. The next one is from Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, again on economic relief post-COVID-19. He said, during the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, there should not be a trade-off between survival checks that the working class, seniors, children, and the disabled desperately need and emergency unemployment benefits. In the richest country in the world, we must do both. The last one is from Congressman Frank Pallone on the Trump administration and what happens to them afterward. He wrote, I support the Protecting Our Democracy Act because we must continue to hold this administration accountable after January 20th. The future of our democracy is at risk if we treat the Trump administration's corruption as an anomaly. Before we go, I want to thank my extremely talented producer, Ricky Herrera. And uh, of course, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Blunt Post with Vic. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jaramie. Blunt Post with Vic.